Am I Talking Leadership? I'm your host, Hugh, and today we're going back to the basics. We explore a lot on this podcast about the ways we can get that extra bit of performance, the additional 5% out of ourselves and our people. But one of the problems on focusing so much on the peripheral is you ignore what's right in front of you. Today, you'll be hearing from Chris Roebuck, a global leadership expert, honorary visiting professor at CAS Business School and a member of IMI faculty. He's been a leader in the military business and public world for decades and has one of those clear-eyed views of what really matters when it comes down to human beings and their work. We talked about how leaders connect with their people, how their people connect with the business and the simple truths that allow for brilliant business performance. So Chris, uh, we're sitting down just after your Advantage session this morning. What was the big idea of today? What was, what's your theory of the case? The perspective that 35 years of being in the military business and governmental world, and business not only with big globals, but also with SMEs, is that we end up being distracted by urgency and by complexity. And that distraction then means that we actually miss out on some of the most powerful things we could be doing that actually we know about, but we just stop doing, mm. that would make us even more successful. And, and when I talk about success, it's, it's not just success in terms of me and my career. It's success in terms of my team, my organization, how we work together as people. So, so there is a ripple effect that is not just about the sort of hard ends of success in terms of the money I'm getting and the promotion and all the rest mm-hmm. of it, but it's also about the, the fundamental issue about do we have rewarding working lives that then lead to rewarding personal lives? So it's a lot about remembering sort of the basics or fundamentals. Yes. Um, you call them simple truths in your session. Could you yes. just give us a couple of them? Well, we, 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 we get distracted, but, but you know, if, you, if you just take a step back from all of the stuff that's happening around you and you think about... What is your experience from your career? Mm. And what makes organizations successful? And the fundamental simple truths are, one, in terms of organizations, organizations that get the best from their people are more successful than organizations that don't. Mm -hmm. Fact. Secondly, if you reflect on your own career and you reflect upon the bosses that you've had and you ask yourself, well, who did I give the most effort to? Mm. The simple analysis you will make without any doubt at all is that the boss you gave the best effort for was the boss that showed they cared about you as a person. And so that that's the simple truth. Organizations that get the best from their people are successful. That bosses that show they care will get the best from their people. Mm-hmm. And that you as an individual will give your best to a boss that shows they care. And it doesn't matter what organization you are in, uh, and I've worked with organizations around the world from all sorts of different sectors. I've spoken to organizations around the world from you know, the Chinese space program in Beijing, the executive committee of the Myanmar Red Cross in Rangoon, investment bankers, clinicians in the UK National Health Service. And that fundamental truth holds true. Mm. Because it's not about the organization. It's not about the job. It's about us as human beings. 
And can you talk about some of those specific characteristics or traits that you see in successful leaders that do show that um, care towards a, a, a direct employee? I would summarise it as being showing genuine interest. But everyone that's listening to this knows the answer already because that is what I find inspiring about what I do in that I'm not going into a room and telling people stuff they don't know. Mm. What I'm doing is I am helping people in the room understand that they already know what they need to do. They already know what behaviour from a boss makes them give their best. They already know what they have to do to get the best from people. So what I do is help them remember stuff that they've forgotten. And anybody listening to this, anybody who has had an inspirational boss over their career, and and I hope that everyone listening to this has, knows exactly what that boss did on a day-to-day basis that made them special. All those little things day-to-day, the, for example, showing that you care, just asking simple questions about how people are doing, the telling people how what they do contributes to the big picture, about developing you, asking for ideas, listening to people, understanding they make genuine mistakes. The the simple concept of actually saying to somebody, look, you know, is there anything I can do to develop your career further? Mm. And it's those little things that, that make a real difference. So yes, there are aspects that relate to giving you a clear briefing in terms of what I want you to do. But then it's about allowing you to get on with it when I've delegated it to you. And what is really interesting is that when people reflect on what their best boss did, that in turn made that individual give their best, all of the simple actions that that boss did If you analyse those, 80% of those relate to creating a positive emotional relationship between the two human Mm. beings. They are not focused on the execution of the job. It was interesting, you you asked the room to make a list, and the list ran to two pages, but I don't remember ever seeing pay there, extra pay, extra even support and tools. Like physical tools or software, it was all emotional engagement. Yeah. So if you if you take and I I've been doing this for probably now well over ten years to to total I understand somewhere in the region of over eighteen thousand leaders around the world. And what blows my mind is that every single time I ask that question, what did the best boss you ever have do on a day to day basis? I get exactly the same list. So why don't people do it? What are the challenges if it's if it's fundamental, if it's basic, if it's noble and understandable intuitively, why don't we all do it? Because there appears to be an intellectual disconnect between I know what my best boss did for me towards I therefore know what I need to do for my people mm. and then on to I can do this for my people because I have time. So if we if we go back to my presentation this morning, that's why I introduced the concept of the firm foundation. And one of the pieces of feedback I have consistently got talking about 
this list around the world is that people say, oh, I don't have time to do extra things. Mm. To which my response is, well, no, no, those aren't extra things because you must be doing them already because you gave me the list. Mm. You must know about them. It's not that I gave you the list. And they say, yeah, yeah, but I, I'm still under pressure. And as happened this morning, my analysis then was, okay, so why are these people under pressure? And it became clear that what I now call the firm foundation was missing amongst many leaders. So the firm foundation is effectively good capability at one, prioritization, mm -hmm. i.e., am I doing the work that adds real value to the organization? Mm -hmm. Two, time management. Am I able to deliver my work on time because I have managed time. Mm -hmm. Delegation, am I able to delegate effectively to my people, one, to give me time to focus on other uh, important things, but also to inspire and develop them. Three, communication, am I able to explain what needs to be done in a way that is clear, simple, and inspiring for my people? And four, am I able to give feedback on performance in a way that develops them for the future and doesn't actually upset them? Now, when you look at those uh, critical elements of what I call the firm foundation, uh, it became apparent to me that as an ex-military guy, I had those embedded in me during my military training because you have to have those absolutely in your mind to the level of them being almost subconscious mm. to have the resilience to be able to implement tasks in the sort of environments that the military are likely to operate in. What I had forgotten was that actually a significant proportion of commercial managers have never been given those core capabilities. And that was illustrated this morning by when I asked the question of people in the room, just on one of them, on delegation. How many of you in this room have at any point in your time in your career ever been given any formalized training or development on delegation? Um, less than 20% of the hands went up. So we have a room, and, and this is absolutely consistent because I asked that question of every single group of leaders that I talk to. It is, I have never ever had more than 20% of the people in the room put their hands up and say, yes, I've been taught how to delegate effectively. As you also saw this morning, when I have time, what I'll do is I will then turn around to the audience and say, right, do you want me to save you half a working day in five minutes? Let's go into that. And I actually want to come back uh, to the firm foundation, but let's, yeah. let's talk about delegation specifically and that task you gave us because quite revelatory for me. Um, can you just go through that exercise that you went through with the group today? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's, there's sort of two main exercises I do on delegation, but the quickest one is this first one, which is quite simply to say, look, write down three, four or five jobs you do on a regular basis. Mm. Look at those jobs and consider, is there anybody else on your team who has the capability and the time to do that job instead of you? Mm. Capability either currently or if you gave them a little bit of training. Now, that question I ask, and what is really, really interesting, is that the next element is, when you've written those tasks down, put a tick by any you can delegate. If you have a tick, put the amount of time you would save if you did that. 
And and you mentioned that that there would be a specific person that could do this job if you were ill. Yes. Which was I thought was a nice way of putting it. Precisely. So people write down three or four tasks. And my experience is from having done this for numerous years that everybody will find one or two tasks they can delegate. As you saw this morning, ballpark, again, absolutely consistently, the average time saving in the room on that exercise that takes five minutes is half a working day mm. a week for everybody in the room. And you think, your senior leaders, if in five minutes I have shown you how to save half a working day a week, what does that mean about the amount of time you could have saved if your organisation had taught you how to do this when you were 25 for your first leadership role? I would say when it comes to delegation, I'd say one of the most common refrains, and something I say all the time is, by the time I've showed them how to do it, I'll have done it myself. Yeah. Now that often happens because there's an urgent deadline coming up, so you just have to get it done. Yeah. Is there any strategy leaders can employ to say, okay, I won't be able to train them now, but let me make a note of this, and on Friday afternoon I'm going to train them so when next time it happens. Right. That goes to the point of, of the next model that I alluded to, which is the um, prioritization thing. Now, we've all seen the prioritization grid of not urgent, not important, um, not urgent, but important, the urgent and important, and the, the other one. Well, I've completely forgotten what the other one is. But basically, we've all seen the grid. Now, what is interesting is that our brains have a proclivity to be urgency addicted. So when we see a deadline, we think we need to respond to it. Clearly, anything that is urgent and important is obviously the first thing you do. And anything that is not urgent and not important, you don't do. That's the easy bit. But what is really interesting is that urgency addiction means that we then, after the important and urgent, tend to focus on the urgent but not important. Mm. Because there's a deadline. What is interesting is the other quadrant, which is the important but not urgent which is the stuff that we can put off because it doesn't have a deadline, which is exactly the situation you alluded to, which is, oh, I will train this person next time. And then what happens is next time it's urgent. So you say, oh, yeah. I'll train this person next time. next time. Because next time never happens. And the secret of those things is to say, actually, even if I don't do it now, I will put a note in my diary and I will put a deadline on sitting down with this person and developing them so I can delegate to them. Mm. So actually there is not a next time. And I have found with senior leaders in a, any number of organizations that that, that 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 simple trick of saying, focus on those things that are not urgent but important, which often relate to developing people, inspiring people, supporting people, looking at where the team needs to be in the future, doing research around what's happening in the market. All of those things, because they have no specific deadline, you keep putting off and you keep putting off and you keep putting off. That links to the example I gave where 
and we can all think of this from our careers, which is you want to talk about something important to your boss. You go up, you say, can we talk about this? The boss says, oh, no, I'm terribly sorry. I'm really busy. Can you talk to me tomorrow? You go back tomorrow. They say, well, I was going to speak to you, but this thing has now come up. Can we do it tomorrow? Third day comes, you go and see the boss. Can we talk about this now? Well, I know I had planned to, but I'm really sorry. But this, uh, and And from a logical perspective, you say, okay, I understand that rationally because they've suddenly got busy. The problem is that your brain, from an emotional perspective, says, that's rubbish. I've just been rejected three times. I have been rejected three times. <laughs> the moment your brain knows that you have been rejected three times, it doesn't matter what your conscious brain says in terms of the rational analysis of it. Your subconscious and your emotional brain start saying, because I've been rejected three times, why should I really put in any more effort for this person who clearly doesn't care about me? Mm. Now, have that boss put in their diary a specific appointment, 10 o'clock, come hell or high water, I will sit down and talk to this person about this issue and done it. That would have actually boosted your trust in yeah. that boss. Um, before, I want to keep on the firm foundation because it, mm-hmm. it was quite a, a fundamental and a red thread, I think, through your through your presentation. It, it, it's always been a theory in mind that people get promoted for skills or for their abilities in one area yes, and then don't get trained and then are assumed that they are trained in other areas. Yes. So what are the, the common places that leaders fall down? I'm thinking about the leadership, the leader that can't give a presentation or, you know, a leader that can't delegate or time management. What's what's the recommendation for you for if you're talking to a, a senior management team? Um, I, I would say you, you pick out two elements there. Um, you pick out what I would call, as I say, the firm foundation, but but you then pick out other, other elements in terms of sort of, for example, presentations. Mm. Um, Maybe that would fall under the communication. Yeah, so that falls right. under the communication. The, the issue is that this is a hidden problem. It's like an iceberg. So people's functional capability is what they're recruited for, yeah. what they're promoted for. That is the tip of the iceberg that everybody sees. That's the good bit. What they don't see is the stuff that's under the water, which is the rest of the iceberg, which is the risk, yeah. the stuff that's going to sink the Titanic. And this is the basic lack of capability around the prioritization, time management, delegation, communication, and giving feedback. Because even in, even in asking the question, how many people have been given time management training? I've never had more than 50% in the room. Mm. So if we take all of those things as a whole, so prioritization, time management, delegation, communication, and giving feedback. I can sit here and say, in general terms, any leadership audience I talk to, 50% of them have not had any training or development on any of those things. Mm. You then ask yourself, well, hang on, if I'm a leader, what am I supposed to be doing every day other than prioritizing, managing time, delegating, communication, and giving feedback? Yeah. So organizations have got themselves into a position that they are promoting people on the basis of technical expertise 
when those people, through no fault of their own, have had no development on what they need to do day to day as a leader. Mm. It is complete and utter madness. The reason it is complete and utter madness is that if to get people up to speed in those things, you needed to send every single one of them to Harvard for a month and pay $100,000, I could understand why organizations wouldn't do it. This was my next question. Yes, because obviously we're sitting in an executive development institute right now. So this might be slightly self-serving, but is the recommendation to send every single person that comes into a management or leadership role on a basics training course and beyond that should there be almost like you're driving should there be refresher courses throughout people's career yes yes is a simple answer yeah. um well why, let's go for the cost benefit now then so the cost of that what will the organization see in benefits on the other end well, if you if you work on the basis as you saw this morning i found that audience of senior leaders approximately half a working day each in under 10 minutes. Yeah. I think if you then say, okay, so that individual could save half a working day a month. That's two days a month. Yeah. Yeah. That's 24 days a year. We are saving 24 days of leadership time per year for an investment of 10 minutes. Yeah. I'm not saying that it would just take 10 minutes. But if we look at the reality of putting in place the firm foundation, a good quality development program for first-line managers or indeed for any leader that would cover all of those basics, so the prioritization, time management, delegation, communication and feedback, and potentially throw in presentation skills, Mm. could be done in a day. Yeah. Now, if you then say, okay, even if that cost, even if that cost an organization 3,000 euros per head, which it probably wouldn't, mm. but even if you say 3,000 euros a head, just think of the return on investment. So they're saving half a working day as a minimum through the delegation, through getting prioritization right. They're making their team 25% more effective because the team is focusing on work that adds value to strategic objectives. Mm. I would suggest that for the average line manager, you've saved your 3,000 euros in a couple of months, Mm. let alone the additional benefits about motivational feedback, clear communication, and time management, which means that, and the figures for time management are frightening in that, the evidence suggests that leaders who have not been given good time management training mm-hmm. underestimate how long it will take to do the job when asked by their boss by 30%. I've seen higher than that, actually. I've seen 50%. I've, yeah, 40 or 50%. <laughs> so effectively, the moment that individual says to their boss, it's going to take X, the whole thing is already off the rails. Yeah. Um, if you take that, it is absolute madness for any organization to appoint anybody to a management role unless the firm foundation is put in place first. Now, the reason that that is not happening, and this is quite interesting historically, if you look back to the 60s and 70s, and you had the major organizations, the Siemens, the GEC, and all of those organizations that had a traditional old school leadership structure, management structure, 
people were not allowed to go into the next job until they had done the course that gave them the skills to do the mm. next job. As we went through various economic cycles, 80s, 90s, what then happened was all of those training programs were canned to save money on the basis of, oh, we don't need to do those, they mm. cost money. No, that is a fundamental misanalysis of the issue. Those are not a cost. They are an investment. Yeah. Because if you do not have those things in place, you are creating a risk of lost profit for your organisation. Now, the only reason that organisations didn't get hammered for doing that was because they all did it. Yeah. So they all got worse. And uh, first of all, I want to make uh, or ask you about one point. We talked about a lot about line managers, that mm -hmm. sort of initial leap from a technical job into a management role. Yeah. Um, that's kind of intuitive. We, we can mm -hmm. see that. But what's the sort of state of play in senior management teams that you see, middle management teams that have probably been in management roles 10, 15, 20 years? Do they all need this? Yes. Refresh. Yes, absolutely. P because if you look at the stats from the discussion this morning, in my experience, again, <laughs> I have done audiences of partners of law firms. I have done audiences of chief executives and finance directors only in the room. And the result is exactly the same. How many of you have done delegation? Less than 20%. Yeah. And seriously, I have had audiences, board level audiences, and I have run through that exercise and they've all found half a working day a week. So, so this has been going on for years. You know, one of the reasons, one of the fundamental points about this is, is, is I would say, if you look at what the military does, the military puts this firm foundation in place first before they even start looking at developing leadership. Mm. If the military do it, the military don't do stuff unnecessarily. They do it because there is a critical point to having that foundation to enable those people they want to have as leaders to be able to lead in the situations the military will be in. That should say to anybody that that makes perfect sense. And for those who say, oh, well, you know, the military can just order people to do things, mm. they are completely and utterly wrong because within the context of what modern militaries do, that just does not fit in with the reality because in a situation that is fast, as fast moving as a modern military confrontation, the only way you can stand a chance of not losing is that you have to cascade decision-making to the lowest possible level so you are as responsive on the ground within seconds um, compared to what the other people are doing. And, and that means that the military will cascade this firm foundation not only to the formalised leadership group, but they will also cascade it to the civilian equivalent of the, the blue-collar workers. Mm. Mm. So we're talking about foremen. So the military will cascade this capability to anybody at any level who has responsibility for other people. 
So we talked a lot about these traits um, and characteristics we see in our own ideal leader. Yeah. You sort of summed it up as as eye care leadership. Can yes. you just explain that concept? Yeah, the, the, if you look at the list of best bosses, one of the things that is in that list always is my boss cared about me. Mm. And that is driven by the neuroscience. This other human being has shown they genuinely care about me. Because they have done that 250,000 years of human evolution triggers a natural response powered by serotonin and cortisol that says therefore I respond positively I care about what they want and we create trust between us and as a result of that if that person is my boss I will do my best for them and that is the driver of I care leadership which is if my boss cares about me I will care about my boss. I will care about what my boss wants to achieve. But I will not only care about my boss, I will care about my organization. Mm. And then it's not, I will just deliver high performance, but because I care, other people in the team care about each other. So we develop each other. It's a snowball effect. It's a snowball effect. There's this ripple effect. Because I care, if I see an opportunity that isn't within the context of my current job to make things better, I will point it out. If I have to go through change and improvement, I will do it because my boss cares about me, we have a mutually supportive structure within the team, and I am prepared, despite the natural context of my brain in terms of seeking out danger, Mm. I am prepared to risk that because I am in an eye care situation. Not only that, but if I see something wrong, I will point it out rather than keeping quiet because I don't care. If you say to me, we need to innovate, we need to really think about something new, we, we need to do this better, I will go away and even if I'm on holiday, I will think about it. Mm. And if I have the most brilliant idea, And irrespective of what people say about it, people have brilliant ideas in the gym, in the bath, on their bicycle, whilst they're running and on holiday. If I care, I will remember it and I will tell you as my boss. If I don't care, I will forget it instantly. And I want to return a little bit to the the sort of state of play of where Mm -hmm. we are right now. Let's talk about senior leaders and line managers. There's often a thing of what we, what's that famous quote, what we can't measure, we can't manage. Yeah. So how can a CEO board level take that snapshot of their leaders and what their capabilities are in these fundamentals? Is there a, a strategy, techniques yeah. to, to okay. do that? There, there are, I, what I would say is that there's two elements to this. There is the sheep dip approach that is based on what the reality is out there for the basics. And then there is the more nuanced approach that relates to personal capability and experience. Mm. So let's take those two. Anybody, anybody listening will have worked out by now that from my experience, with all the audiences I've spoken to, we know that 30, less than 20 to 30% of them will have done delegation. We know that less than 50% of them will have done time management. So we know that any group of leaders anywhere 
unless they are completely exceptional, and obviously I'm, you know, I, I'm cutting out of this analysis military, yeah. um, military audiences, uh, that any group is going to have significant shortfalls in that firm foundation. Therefore, you can bet as an organisation, you don't even need to assess capability. You just have to do it. You just have to do it. So that's why I call it the sheep dip. Mm. Any organisation out there should say to themselves, actually, we don't need to worry about 360. We don't need to worry about performance feedback. We don't need to worry about anything. We just need to run all of our leaders through the firm foundation over a half day or day programme to make sure they're up to speed. Then when they have the firm foundation, that's when we can move to stage two, which is looking at that more nuanced element, which is, okay, with A, the firm foundation, B, their expert knowledge, how is that person able to do what needs to be done through their people? That's the point at which the performance management comes in. That's the point at which the 360 comes in because that is then fine-tuning. But the bizarre thing is that it's like, if I use an analogy, what organizations are doing now is they are effectively, in terms of this agenda, they are effectively painting the windows on a house to make it look nice when it is actually built on quicksand. Yeah. And the fact that the whole thing is starting to sink. You know, the, the, the analysis is that, that I explain is this is a risk. And people say, well, what do you mean it's a risk, Chris? Okay, you have operational risk, you have reputational risk, and you have all sorts of regulatory risk, etc., etc. But one risk that people don't think about is the risk of lost profit. Mm. Now, from my perspective, the risk of lost profit is the fact that you, because you have not done what you need to do to develop your leaders, you as an organisation, and I have said this to chief executives and finance directors, you are probably achieving a bottom line that is 10% less than it could be. Mm. That is a risk. That 10% difference is lost profit that you should not have lost. If your investors get wind that you could increase profit by up to 10% for no cost, they are going to take a pretty dim view of you as a chief executive and you as a board. Mm. Now, you said no cost error. I'm going to challenge you on that one. <laughs> because even a day's training, yeah, even if it's in-house and it's done by people that you're paying anyway, it's still time. It's still an invest- investment. So there is cost to this. Yeah, there's cost in the sense that to get people to do this better, you are going to have a cost. But in terms of if when people realise what those things are they need to do to be a best boss and get the best from people... They're free. They are free because they already know about it. Mm. There is a cost. But again, going back to my example, even if you say that the development programme 
that enables your leaders at all levels to unleash that potential through an effective firm foundation is going to cost you 3,000 euros a head. You're going to get your money back in a couple of months. Oh, absolutely. I, I want to talk about the reason why I asked about cost actually and time was ego of leaders because I could imagine if you went to a lot of senior management teams and you said we are going to spend a day talking to you about prioritizing your work getting your time management right delegation right communication feedback yep they would say I do that stuff perfectly so how can you we know they don't but how can you as a leader sort of communicate this as a as a philosophy that you want to permeate throughout your organization it's and get around that ego issue. Well, it's it's also it's fundamentally at that level they are driven by cost benefit. Mm. So, if you look at the statistics that are out there, we know that what this does across an organisation, if implemented, is it produces thirty percent more effort from sixty percent of people. We know that depending on the business model, blah 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 blah, you could potentially get ten percent on bottom line for free. Yeah. So for senior leaders, that's motivational Motivational point number one. If I can effectively get 10% on bottom line for minimal cost, I'm going to look good. In terms, so that's why I want to roll it out across my organisation. In terms of my own uh, ability to do this, then yes, there is a question. Because obviously, I must be doing quite well because that's why I'm chief executive. Yeah. But... The whole point of personal development throughout our lives is the fact that we should always want to be better mm. than we are now. However... You see my point, though. I see your point, and that is why it's, it, it is about positioning. It is about positioning. It is about um, delivery in a way that meets the needs of the audience in that. Yeah, okay, fine. So you're talking to chief executives about these things. One, you're talking to them from the perspective of this is what you need to do for your leaders. Now, you may be doing this perfectly, but I will just explain how your leaders could do this better so that if you don't happen to be doing this perfectly, and you probably are, but if you don't happen to do be doing this perfectly, this might give you a couple of hints. So it's, um, it, it's the concept that most leaders go on training and development programs, yeah? Um, board level people have strategic briefings. Mm. They don't go on training and development. Um, which is really interesting because I, I spend a lot of time as an executive coach. And to some degree, the challenges that board level people have are very much the same challenges that everybody has. Yeah. The only, and, and a, a colleague and I wrote one of the first books on strategic leadership development, and most of my career, certainly for the last 15 years, has been on the identification and development of strategic leaders, uh, for example, at HSBC and UBS. And, and that strategic leadership piece is, is really interesting because it is definitely a significant gear up mm. from being an operational leader. So, so there are challenges around ambiguity. There are challenges around creating culture. Um, but what is interesting is that the adoption of the firm foundation and the other elements of excellence earlier on in the career gives you then the basic tools to be effective at strategic level. Mm. So if you have developed the, the, the understanding of empathy, how you interact with people, 
Um, you've got your time management spot on, your delegation spot on. When you flip from the operational realm into the strategic realm, the the concept of understanding the big you. picture. Yeah. So, but, but, but interestingly, that links to, if you, um, from the perspective of someone who's a sort of an expert on the identification and development of leadership, in terms of how, whether people are talent for the future, um, one of the things that people look at is performance. But what is interesting is that if you promote people purely on today's performance, and make that a predictor of how they're going to do one or two levels higher up, yeah. it is actually, according to the data, anywhere between uh, can present a, between a 40 and 50% failure rate. Because unless with the performance you do an analysis of behavior that is predictive of capability at the next level. So we're talking about things like, does this person have the ability to get things done through other people, through understanding, empathy, yeah. interaction. Does this person understand the big picture in terms of how what they do fits in that gives them the ability to f align operational to strategic? That sort of purpose. Yes. Does this person have the ability to respond positively to change and see change as an opportunity? Um, but not only about where change is going in the short term, but where the potential for change will go in the long term. Does this person have the ability to be resilient under pressure? And finally, does this person constantly learn through proactively seeking feedback from others on their own performance? And does this person proactively give constructive feedback to others? And if a team leader ensure that there is a structure for the development of performance of their team. Mm. Now, all of those criteria are then highly predictive of performance at the next two levels up. So if through the firm foundation and these elements plus the eye care sort of leadership in terms of getting the best. Mm. If you embed that as a middle manager and you are doing that well, if, well, one, it sets you up for identification as a potential strategic leader, yeah. but two, when you make the transition, you are already doing the things that will enable you to be a more effective strategic leader. And deliver strategy. And deliver strategy. Can you talk about results on an organization-wide level? Any personal experiences here? Uh, I think we should... Uh, no, one, two, three. Can you talk about results on an organization-wide level? Any personal experiences here where this sort of philosophy of the fundamentals of leadership um, and the I care philosophy of leadership, yeah. which I think we should touch on more. Can you give us an example of, of, of results? Okay, so if we look at... Look at two examples, and the reason I choose these two examples is that they are from different worlds and different sizes. Um, in fact, we can we can look at three examples. The first example, my experience in the military. People who were given that foundation, myself and my colleagues, put into situations where under pressure, under a lot of pressure, we had to lead teams of highly professional colleagues, 
highly professional soldiers um, in situations where we had to deliver without fail. And doing those things created this we, not me culture, where the team was rock solid as a team. Mm. Everybody supported each other. Everybody was inspired. And that allowed us to achieve as a team more than anybody as an individual could have achieved or more often than we as a team thought we would achieve. If you then flip that round to my experience out as Global Head of Leadership at UBS, UBS was an interesting example because prior to 2002, UBS did not exist as a global bank. UBS was created by numbers of mergers and acquisitions into being a brand new global bank. The constituent organisations did exist as constituent organisations, but not as a global bank, effectively as potential parts of a global bank. When they were brought together in 2002, then there was a fundamental challenge, which is how do we create an organisation of 70,000 people that has not existed before in a way that all the elements of that organisation pull together around a single vision, purpose, set of values and strategy to create something that is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm. And, and that was the brief. And therefore, utilising... It's a big brief. Um, it is a big brief, and we were very successful. It won awards. It's now a Harvard Business School case study on how you can align effort in an organisation um, that big. Also, given the fundamental... The, um, monetary focused perspective within global banking um, and to some degree elements of the institution were highly transactional okay elements were very much relationship and trust based but some were highly transactional but there the the concept was around leaders um, delivering through their people and in particular at that point it wasn't eye care leadership it, it was what we described there and that was epitomised by the strap line that we developed for the bank in, I think, 2004, which was UBS, you and us. Mm. UBS, you and us as customers and clients. UBS, you and us as employees. To create one bank. And that was the overarching theme that powered what is now that Harvard case study. And within that was the concept of entrepreneurial leadership. Mm. Such that you had to enable leaders at all levels to be aware of the big picture, the vision, the values, the strategy, and align to it. And the seminal moment, I think, was in um, uh, when the chief executive stood up in front of the top 500 leaders of the bank and said, our fundamental challenge is that in the next year, I want every one of our 67 to 70,000 employees to be a proactive brand ambassador for this institution. Mm. That is the way we will deliver success. The reason that was interesting is that most chief executives would stand up and say, I want to increase market share by X. I want to increase earnings per share by Y. I want to increase revenue by Z. Yep. <clears throat> But we had already seen the effect of what we were implementing around entrepreneurial leadership, around inspirational leadership. And therefore, that ultimate result 
was going to be produced by creating a culture and inspirational vision where everybody was A, capable, and B, believed in the journey. Mm. And that belief meant that if we could create every single person in that institution as a brand ambassador, all the financials would happen. Because that was the core. If people believe and you give them the capability, they will become brand ambassadors and then the financials will roll in as they did. 235% increase in profits, um, brand value up 51% in I think three years, significant increases in earnings per share, return on human capital up significantly. But what was really interesting was with a 3% headcount drop. That's interesting. And for a listener that wanted to find that Harvard case study, well, yeah, it's called Aligning the Integrated Firm, Harvard Business School, uh, UBS. Okay, so you're a leader listening to this right now. Yep. Um, saying to themselves, okay, we need to develop these leadership traits uh, or bring them into the company. We need to do these basic fundamental things right. Where do you start? What's the first thing you do? Firstly, refre- reflect on yourself. Maybe just do a little exercise and think about what did your best boss on a, do on a day-to-day basis that made you give them their, yeah. your best. And just write those things down and then ask yourself the question, am I really doing these things as effectively as possible yeah. for my people? And that is an exercise that can be run for your team, for other people, quite simply and effectively. And it's a good reflection. Mm. So if you're an individual leader, pose that question to yourself. If you're a chief executive, again, pose that to yourself because chief executives are not only strategic leaders, they're also operational leaders. They have a team. Mm. Uh, And one of the challenges that chief executives I coach have is that in many cases what they've done is they've expanded their team to a point that they might have eight, nine, ten direct reports. So therefore there is a span of control issue that means that they cannot actually effectively inspire, motivate, support that many people. Because they're too busy monitoring things. Because, exactly. So so there is an issue, uh, which I won't go into in terms of there is a solution to that for, for, for really senior leaders. But for that really senior leader, you know, you have to ask the question in terms of, okay, we might not have a burning platform. Okay, our investors are reasonably happy. Okay, the market is reasonably okay with what we're doing. Mm. But if I could add 10% onto the bottom line for virtually no investment, from the cost-benefit perspective, financially, does that make sense? From the perspective of me as a leader of this institution, in terms of my integrity into, of inver- vis-a-vis what I should be doing, mm to create a legacy for the future in terms of what I should be doing morally as an individual for my people. What should I be doing? And I believe on all of those three counts, it is an absolute no-brainer that something needs to be done. Now, you can say, okay, cynically, well, the investors are happy, the people aren't too upset, the leaders are doing okay. But if you look at what's happening now in the market with A, savvy investors, B, depending on the industry, 
financial services for an example, what the regulators are doing, a lot of people are now spending a lot more time looking at culture, values and behaviour. Mm. The issue is that you can pump down every single initiative you want from the top on culture, values and behaviour. But unless you put in place the firm foundation and I care leadership to make people give their best, all of those three will fail. Because what's going to happen is, as they cascade down, they are going to hit people who have neither the skills, nor motivation, nor understanding, or even care mm. about making it happen. And you as a chief executive can sit there and say, oh yes, but I've been told it's happening. <laughs> yeah, that's because there are a group of people in your organisation called early adopters. Mm. And what will happen will be that your initiative will go down the pipeline and maybe 10, 15% of people will start to implement. Now, because many of your direct reports really don't want to turn around and say to you <laughs> only 10% yeah. to 15% of the It's a constant theme on this podcast. What will happen will be they'll say, oh yes, it's been implemented. And what you will do is you will say, oh, that's really good. It's been implemented in six months. Maybe in a couple more months, I'll send the next initiative down. And you send the next initiative down the same pipe. And what then happens is that it's adopted by the 10% of early adopters and you're told it's been adopted. But what you don't realise is that at least 30% of the organisation still hasn't adopted the first initiative mm. because what they know is that what will happen will be that in another six months, another initiative will come down the pipeline, by which time you will have forgotten about the first initiative. You will assume that it has been implemented. It won't have been implemented because what the people know at the bottom of the organisation is if they wait long enough, it will go away. And, and, and this was one thing I was struggling today, and I actually said it during the session while people were discussing. This all plays into CEOs and senior leaders wanting to keep control. Basically, they create systems to replace the fundamentals of leadership rather than just focus on the fundamentals of leadership because systems are more measurable. Correct. Would that be something you agree on? Absolutely. Um, right. Okay, you need to have systems. And if I go back to my military past, you know, within the military, you have absolute clear accountability for what you are supposed to do. You are absolutely clear on what you are supposed to have to do. And you're absolutely clear on when you have to do it by. But what is really interesting in the military is within NATO militaries, there is a concept called mission command. Mm. And what that means is, I as a senior commander don't tell you how to do it. I just tell you what I want you to do. I just tell you when I need it done by. You then decide how it's going to be done. Mm. I empower you to make the decisions. I also give you the big picture so that if whilst you are implementing what I have asked you to implement, events change the situation, you understand what the strategic objective is so you can alter the plan to ensure that your operational action continues to align to the strategic objective. It's, it's why that sort of, I was just following orders is such a weak defence because they've always been given a superseding order to think for themselves 
Absolutely. And, 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 and the, the I was following orders bit went out in the Second World War. Mm. If you look at what modern militaries have done, particularly within the context of uh, support to societies, be it in Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, whatever, the, the concept of cascading decision-making ability to the lowest practical level within the context of an overall strategic objective is how they work. If commercial organizations and public sector organizations did that, it would transform performance. Mm. But going back to the, to, to, to the simple principles, the, the reason militaries do it like that is because if you get it wrong in the military, people die. Mm. But also there are many safety critical industries out there where the same applies. Oil and gas, transport, medical, you get it wrong, people die. There are some industries where you can get away with saying, okay, no one's going to die. Mm. But that is no excuse. Financial services, you know, elements of retail, whatever. Um, so the question I ask chief executives is quite simple. Can you put your hand on your heart and say, that you are as good a leader as you can be. Yeah. Are you prepared to look yourself in the mirror every day and say, I know that I could help my organization be better by doing some really, really simple things, but I just haven't bothered. Which is really it, isn't it? That they, yes. They just haven't taken that time just to do it. It's, it's, it's about the integrity. And we're all guilty of it. It's about the integrity, and, uh, but it's also about that fundamental issue between what I experienced in the military and the commercial world, which is, do you believe that your organization should be founded on a we, not me culture, or a me, not we? Because if you're a chief executive who looks yourself in the face in the morning and says, I know I could make a difference, but I can't be bothered, you are setting an example of me, not we, to everybody else. Mm. And actually, in relation to the neuroscience we discussed this morning and, and, and my concept of, of doing a workshop on what are critical neuroscience um, lessons that every leader should know, one of the neuroscience lessons is it doesn't matter if you don't say anything. Our subconscious has the ability to detect through non-verbal signals, if somebody is inauthentic. A BS detector, as they would say. And everybody says it doesn't exist. I'm sorry, it does exist. It is proven it exists. And it is so much more powerful than you think. I think, actually, I always point to the current presidential election that's going on. You see the inauthentic leaders drop out very quickly. Yes. They're the ones that don't get traction. But that goes back to the point about belief. Mm. That goes back to UBS and the board there. They believed. And when they went out and talked to people, because they believed, other people believed. And, and you know, this thing about, oh, I need to hold a town hall. Yeah, to hold a town hall. But if you stand up there and you do not believe and you're just spouting the words on the auto queue... Mm people will know you're spouting the words on the auto queue. And actually, don't even hold the town hall. Because if you do hold the town hall and they know you're inauthentic, 
one, their trust in you as a senior leader is dead. Two, the chances of them implementing what you're saying are nil. Yeah. So we've, we've, we've talked a lot about the basics today and fundamentals. So yeah. let's do the basic and repeat the message at the end. Um, you're on an elevator, classic elevator pitch. Yeah. What's your theory of the case that you say to a CEO and senior team when it comes to these uh, fundamentals of leadership? As a carrot, these things will make a real difference to you and to your people in terms of the effectiveness of your organisation and its performance financially. The cost of doing these things is minimal, so the return on investment is massive. It is a financial no-brainer, as an ex-director of Vodafone said to me. We should have been doing this for years. It is a license to print money. If we look at this from the moral perspective of you as a leader who is supposed to be somebody who is leading by example and who has integrity, there is a moral perspective for you to do these things. And there is a third perspective which links into you as a human being, which is we know that if these things happen in your organisations, if the firm foundation is there, if eye care leadership spreads and embeds, the final thing is that not only will you have a truly inspiring and rewarding workplace that makes you more money and makes you feel good as the chief executive, is that your people will go home having had rewarding time at work which will enhance their whole personal life. Mm. We know that nearly 50% of people go home every night worrying about work. If in your organisation you can make that 10%, you will have done your moral duty. But interestingly, it's not only you'll have done your moral duty, because your people will be brand ambassadors. Mm. And then you will get the best talent from your competitors ringing up and saying, can we come and join you? And that's, that's the dream, isn't it? Chris, thanks so much. It's been a fascinating uh, session Pleasure. and conversation. Thanks so much. Pleasure.